When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Crisis Talks. Uh, in today's interview, I'm interviewing Kelvin Brown, otherwise known as the Gringo, the man who was brought in from Australia into the Chilean mind rescue back in 2010. On Thursday, the 5th of August 2010, there was a cave-in at San Jose Copper Gold Mine located in the Atacama Desert, around 45 kilometres north of the regional capital of Copiapo in northern Chile. 33 men were trapped 700 metres underground and five kilometres from the mine's entrance. After the initial efforts, they determined they need extra specialist support. They turned to Kelvin Brown, a drilling engineer and drilling expert from over in Australia. So today, ladies and gentlemen, I'm welcoming Kelvin Brown. Kelvin, welcome along to Crisis Talks. Thanks, Grant. Pleasure to be here. Now, mate, how did it come about that you got called around the other side of the world into uh, a high-profile mines rescue. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, funny, it's a funny old story, that. I, um, I was fast asleep, truth be known, uh, dozing away on the couch, and it was about midnight uh, when my phone rang, and I could see on the screen it was from our Chilean area manager, Felipe, um, and the guys can call me any time, but, you know, they know... Um, when it's late where I live. So it's, it's only if it's important. I thought, oh, well, this, this must be important. You know, Felipe knows he's calling me at midnight. And um, so I answered the phone and he, um, his English is fairly good, but it was, he was extremely excited. Um, and he was very excited, actually. I got out of him that um, the president called me. Um, we, 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 we need you to come over. There's, um, we, we have to do directional drilling and... Um, so I said, oh, uh, right. And, I, and I, I'd sort of joined, a, vaguely joined a couple of dots. I, I did remember hearing on the radio um, during the day that there had been some incident in South America. But I, I honestly, to be honest with you, Grant, I thought nothing of it. I thought, oh, that happens. And um, then when Felipe said that, I've gone, right. So the, I went back to bed and slept on it um, and then woke up in the morning and did a little bit of research. And then, and then I woke Felipe up. Um, and talk to him about it. And that, that's where he gave me some details um, that there was this disaster and there were some people trapped and they want to they use directional drilling, which the guys know is, is my background. Um, in a previous life, I was a, a directional driller. So um, they wanted to, to use my skills to do that. So tell us a bit about that background. So for the benefit of everyone who's you know, never really heard or understands the mining industry or, or those that are, you know, how does your expertise fit into this particular scenario? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, during my, my drilling career, you know, I, I started on the drill deck as an offsider and, and worked my way up to be a, a mineral exploration driller. So we, we deal with um, drilling through hard rock uh, and the particular company that I worked for, uh, their specialty was uh, directional drilling. So we use certain equipment and software and uh, some drilling programs and we, we steer the borehole to a particular target. And um, so I I pretty much learnt my craft with that company and then when I left there and came into the R&D and uh, manufacturing and development world, um, I got to then make the equipment. So I, I still kept a, a finger in the pie, so to speak. And uh, I teach and train all um, our company people around the world. So Felipe knew that I was the go-to guy. And so the president himself called Felipe and uh, you got the call from Felipe. You called him back after a bit of research. Tell us a story about how you got into country. Yeah. So um, again, the I mean, I, the details were a little bit limited for me. I, I like to have as much detail as possible, and my approach was that it was just going to be a, oh, it's a directional drilling job. I'd, I'd done dozens and dozens of those before, so. Um, that's how I was going to go about it. So I just went around um, preparing all the equipment and bringing in equipment from, I had some gear in Indonesia, I had to bring that in, getting it all ready to get over there. Uh, and hopefully the um, the details were going to develop as, as I um, made my way over there. So I booked the flights uh, over to Sydney and then um, Sydney to um, Santiago and then up to, um, up to Copuapo uh, and the, um, the Chilean president apparently was also um, on the board of Land Chile. So he'd organised, help organise the flights uh, and even put me up the front of the plane, which I've I got to say, I and up until then, I'd never had the privilege of flying up the front of the plane. So it was a little bit exciting for me. Um, yeah, so so that, that, that happened. I just kept on doing that, getting ready, and Felipe was in contact with me. Uh, so he's telling me that, you know, they're, they're, they're definitely trapped. There's definitely 33. We're, we're Cadelco, which is the um, part government-owned uh, mineral company there, that they were involved. So I was getting some details coming through, which was, which was okay. I, I didn't have a lot of technical drilling information, but I can get that when I get there. So on the plane I get and, and over I go uh, with a, a lot of equipment. I, I take tons of equipment when I need to do this. Uh, and then I landed and a few more. How long did it take you to get that gear and everything together? So you had to get gear in from Indonesia and stuff like that. So was it, you know, was it a day, a few days for you to get organised? Yeah, I oh, know. It was, it was definitely at least 48 hours I needed in, in Perth, uh, where I was based, to, to get that equipment together. And I was just, some stuff I was sending direct uh, to Sydney. So it all had to go to Sydney to catch the, uh, the land chili plane. So that, that, was, that was critical. Uh, and then, and of course, I had to get there too, which, uh, which, which I did. Uh, and then, then it got a little bit crazy. I, I sort of, I wasn't really mentally prepared uh, for, for that side of it, I was just trying to keep focused that it's a drilling job. I'll get some details on some some coordinates and some drilling related uh, details and stuff, and that'll come uh, by the time I get there. What I completely missed was all the, um, the the exposure and the emotional side of it that was absolutely building, but I was completely unaware to the magnitude of which that was happening. So, you know, I landed in in Sydney, got a quick update from Felipe, and then jumped on the plane, and that that's where they they couldn't have sat me any closer to the front of the plane. Uh, I was literally right behind the pilot. <laughs> um, 
who even uh, the captain came and sat down next to me and and he told me a little bit of the story as well he was the one who told me that uh the president um had actually called him and told him please don't i think it was words to the effect of please don't spare the fuel because they obviously they don't um pilots don't tramp it so to speak they, they try to economically fly the plane and uh this guy did not eco economically fly the plane i think we made it i think we made it in less uh, in four hours less than what they normally would i think it's some um 14 or 15 hours it normally takes to get from uh sydney uh, to santiago and we, we did it in three hours three four hours less <laughs> so he, uh, all on the again the all gas. on the express <laughs> Uh, advice of the president to get over there as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was, yeah, that's what I really liked about it. He was, he was personally ringing people direct and asking for their help. And I guess, you know, when that happens, you just simply can't say no. No, <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. So uh, you arrive over in Santiago. Uh, how was the reception? Yeah, so we did a little stopover in um, Auckland, uh, and you're, you're just transiting, so you're not entering the country. Um, I, I, I answered, I checked a few messages uh, from Felipe. So he was, I think by then he was sleeping. So I just checked a few messages, and it was, it, one of them was, uh, they call me KB. Hey, KB, it's, um, it's getting crazy here. We might have to change your flight. And, and that was all he left me. I've gone, oh, um, great. I'll find out when I get, when I get there, I guess. Uh, I love an adventure, right? So, um, and then I get on for the big long hop and, and that's when I touched down. That's when it, it came to the fore. Um, they, on the plane, when they, they stopped the plane, they, they made sure that I had to be the first person to get out the door because it was urgent. And the, the captain called it over the PA system. And it, that's when it finally started to dawn on me that, um, oh, wow, this is, this is a bit more. And uh, the doors opened up. And I, I kid you not, um, there were two men in black waiting for me. And they grabbed me and guided me uh, out of the building and I um, I actually technically I never entered the country because I didn't stamp my passport which was a little <laughs> upside hey there's a few perks I uh, I didn't have to wait in customs <laughs> uh, and yeah they, they whisked me into uh, a black SUV I kid you not a, a black SUV out a side door and um, I started driving across the tarmac and of course their their English is about as good as my Spanish so we're having a few troubles communicate I'm trying to find out what's going on and I'm my battery's running flat and I'm on the I'm on the phone trying to get details out of Felipe and then in the distance across the tarmac looms a what was a, a C-130 which is a uh, it looks like a Hercules. I think everyone knows what a Hercules is. It's just a, it's a big old military aeroplane, and that loomed into sight. And well, that that was my ride. <laughs> that was the uh, the workhorse of the military, is mate. So one of those. Uh, I think we've all flown in the back of those, all the army guys anyway, flown in the back of those a, a number of times. So that what well, they I presume they loaded all your kit as well. So you went uh, from a first class or a business class flight into a first class back end of a Hercules. How was that for you? Well, look, I've got, to, I've got to tell you, Grant, it, it, first of all, it gave me a massive appreciation of our armed forces and how they get around. And it also gave me a massive uh, appreciation of just how good business class actually is. Because <laughs> it, it, um, it was, oh, what's the word, agricultural, industrial. It was, I, I, got, a big, I got a big piece of that. <laughs> look, that, yeah, they were, when I arrived there, they were, they were forklifting and driving all my equipment and some other equipment uh, into, back, into the back of that. But, you know, it was all, um, 
it was all coming together um, on the moment. So it was, it was just, my head started to swirl a little bit. And this is where I finally caught up in person with Felipe, who was filling me in a little bit more. And, he, and I said, mate, why, oh, this is great. Why are we doing it this way? Because I let him know that I, I did have a um, business class ticket booked to Copuapo. And he says, no, 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 you can't do that. And then he told me that um, in the airport, why the men in black grabbed me and took me to the side was because there was um, all the local media uh, had filled up the the lounge and I had a five hour stopover so I wasn't going to be able to hide from them they they didn't want me exposed to uh, for whatever reason to all the media so they just wanted to take me to the side and get me going so yeah it was pretty mixed and so mate so you've gone from yeah sitting on the couch having a bit of a nap into into uh, a full-blown international incident um, what was it like when you actually started to approach the site? I presume they took you straight to the site from there, did they? Or did you, you get a, a take you to a briefing or anything like that? Yeah, and no, straight to site. So we uh, we touched down in in uh, Copuapo and uh, I was kind of a little bit more prepared now. And why we um, dropped the back of the plane down and the ramp goes down and they're offloading stuff. Um, behind the fences were um, cameras, you know, the film crews were there and, and I was, yeah, it was, it was really dawning on me by this stage. And then um, the police car um, comes across the tarmac. It's only a small airport. And we had to get into the back of that. And um, we had an escort um, directly to site. So they had a, a, an army vehicle, an army truck, loaded up most of my equipment. And um, in, in the back of the police car, we go. And um, lights flashing and, and direct to site, um, which was, you know, then by the time I got to site, that's when it absolutely really hit me because that that was just completely crazy. With um, I guess you know those trucks with the the satellite dishes, there were oh, there must have been a dozen of those, and and there were just people everywhere. It, it was almost like you see with movie stars um, on the red carpet and people coming in. I'm not saying that I was worthy of red carpet, but uh, you know it sort of it really took me took me by surprise a little bit. If you recall, then earlier that year, we'd had Beaconsfield, which was an internationally recognisable incident. So that sort of rolled off the back of that. And we pretty well had um, this one is probably the next major mining disaster and, and obviously a lot more at risk because, you know, behind all this and sitting underground is, is 33 miners. And, and how was the feeling when you first got there? So this is where the... Um how unprepared I was this is where the emotional side of it um, uh, really crept in. And, and, and again, I, I just wasn't, um, I just wasn't prepared emotionally. So I, my head was swirling a little bit um, because I, I had um, uh, families there, media there, um, the enormity of it really set in and, and the passion and the emotion. Uh, I, I, like I said before, I, I really tried to uh, approach this grant as, as this is just a job. Um, give me the coordinates, um, show me the drill rig, I've got the equipment, just let me do my job. I, I tried as much as possible to stick to that, but um, going through those gates uh, where all the people were and they were holding everyone back, um, yeah, it, it really threw me off. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 uh, I'll never forget it. How did you sort of focus yourself in on the, on the task at hand then from there? Had to really really just try to throw myself into the work as much as possible, which, which there was a lot to do. You know, I had um, 11 drill rigs at my disposal uh, and uh, you know, money was absolutely not an issue. But the three days after I'd gotten there, we'd spent $11 million, uh, which is just insane. You know, that, that would take um, 
in normal mineral exploration drilling, that, that would take uh, months and months to burn through that kind of cash. There was, there was planes flying in all sorts of things, um, double redundancies, all sorts of strategies. Yes, look, I, I, ha I did have a lot to do and the days were really, really long. So trying to run 11 drill rigs at once uh, was quite a task. So I was kind of lucky in that respect that when I was actually on the site, um, it was a work environment that kept all the all the friends and families out of it, and I think that's that's really what kept me focused. So you um, you've arrived at site, um, uh, you've gone into a briefing. What was the sort of first sort of um, the first briefing that you walked into? Can you explain the the setup that they had, the crisis setup that they had, and and how they started to engage you into the problem? Yeah, sure. They'd um, we'd taken over the uh, canteen. It was probably the largest single area where we could get all the stakeholders, and there were a lot of stakeholders. Uh, again, everyone was was just trying to help so much, and and that actually became a little bit of a problem, mm. uh, a good problem, but it certainly was something that needed to be managed. So yeah, we we, we had numerous debriefings. Uh, the very first one was. Uh, I met the, the, the then mining minister, uh, Lawrence Goldburn. Um, he was a really nice guy, a very clever guy, spoke good English, and there just weren't enough people who spoke good English because I didn't speak the good Spanish. So, um, <laughs> you know, I was, I, I was, it took a little bit longer, but they, they pulled me in and made sure that um, I was there and that, that they would stop and then translate to me specifically to make sure I understood what was going on. Um, so we would have at least two or three of these meetings a day uh, and we stayed in that room. Uh, and I had a little group uh, with, with my guys off to the corner where we would focus uh, on the planning and whatnot. Um, there were representatives from um, local drilling, all the local drilling contractors, uh, local uh, resource companies. They all had representatives in those, in those rooms. So it was like a war room set up. You know, we had maps on the sides of the walls, um, drilling charts and all these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was the focus was in there. And then I would go out to the rig from time to time, especially once we started actively uh, drilling. But, yeah, a lot of time spent uh, in the war room. Um, it was just yourself there. Was there, I, I presume, Felipe stayed with you as well. How did you manage your own sort of um, your own welfare and your own sort of handovers and, and your own fatigue management in those first few days yeah Felipe was there from the get-go yep. but I guess bear in mind we also run a business from there and yeah. and what he had to do uh, was rotate people out of our local office in Santiago so that someone was always with me uh, he would rotate uh, our employees up and it was a dual thing you know it was also to keep me company and help me out uh, but also uh, it was a good learning experience for them because this type of drilling that I specialized in is was was really new to that region and and they uh, they also wanted to learn it so I mean what what better opportunity to uh, to learn uh, than during th this situation so I had probably um, Felipe oh, probably Felipe Felipe and Marco the two main guys that were always with me so i was never left uh, alone in copuapo i always had one of our company people with us but having said that as we mentioned before i, I was the gringo i was the only um non-chilean guy there uh, up until a point and then we had uh, we had uh, a couple of guys came in from from the u.s there was one more guy from the u.s and one more guy came in from canada yeah. uh, and then i had some a couple of gringo buddies <laughs> so uh forget mel gibson you are the gringo that they got in this case mate 
Correcto. <laughs> <laughs> so, so was the president in these briefings, mate? Was he leading the leading the charge, or who was the sort of crisis leader that you could see? Was it Lawrence, as you mentioned before, or? Yeah, it definitely was Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, Panera was, he did, uh, Sebastian Panera, he did come to site, but then he left, I guess, um, running the country, busy job. Yeah. But he certainly, <laughs> he certainly made the time to come to site. And, and he's, you know, he's literally, his general, his right-hand man was this Lawrence Goldburn, gotcha. uh, who was more than capable. So mm-hmm. Lawrence stayed on site the whole time. Uh, that I was there. I, I wasn't aware that he, he had left site or I mean, or left Copuapo. And then of course uh, the president returned on, uh, on that morning uh, that uh, we confirmed that we'd found the, found the miners. Uh, he, he, he very quickly appeared, uh, but he, he was always, he was always in the background, I guess, but he, yeah. he, he fully trusted uh, Lawrence and uh, Lawrence to me struck me as a, as a top bloke. Yeah. So um, you get in there. What was the first plan and how did it sort of come about? They wanted me to make good of the drill holes that they'd already drilled. So by the time I'd gotten to site, there would have been probably 12, 12, 14 drill holes that had been drilled or were actively being drilled. And first thing I needed was if you want to, um, find out how to get somewhere. You've got to know where you are. And this was one of the problems. They, they didn't have uh, good equipment and technology to accurately know exactly where they were. So the first task was to what we call survey, downhole survey, mm-hmm. all the boreholes and, uh, and confirm that they actually were well off target. They were heading in the wrong direction. So their, their original plan was for me to come over with uh, the skills, the magic equipment, and just steer those boreholes back on path. But what had happened is they had drilled them too deep and too far away that the work required to, to repair those holes was going to be too long. Uh, it was it was a better plan to just um, start from scratch, but have a better better plan from the beginning. And as it turned out, that that was what really really won the day. Was it wasn't necessarily such a magic person with super duper technology. Uh, it was just really um, a better plan. So with that um, with those holes, I mean, how much time did it take them to drill those? And I suppose how much time was potentially wasted then in those? Oh. Let's see, I got there would have been day six, seven, mm. probably a good, I'd say eight or nine days had, had as it turned out, had actually been wasted. Um, and what really exacerbated that was, was this, when I was saying everyone wanted to help and that became part of the problem because they were so keen and so driven to help. They were, they were rushing and there's, there's times when you actually, you shouldn't, uh, rush things. You do need to pull back a little bit and and maintain some some focus. Uh, and that, that kind of lost that a little bit. Everyone was just going off and doing their best. And it, it must have it struck me like uh, it was a little bit like herding cats at times. And they they probably had no control. Or you know, Lawrence might not have been completely aware that what was actually going on was everyone was just pushing so hard and fast that during the phase of drilling, when you do that in certain ground conditions the hole just will not go straight or as straight as you want it. And because they were rushing and pushing so hard to get there, uh, that was actually the thing that was working against them. So um, we identified that fairly quick and it was very hard to tell them to, to not rush. So that couldn't have been a strategy, but the, the plan was to, if they're going to rush, let them rush. The, 
was luckily very consistent. It, when they rushed, it consistently bent the hole. So uh, I literally just planned a hole that was 35 degrees around and just told them, keep drilling like you're drilling, keep rushing. And um, by the third hole, bang. You, you were told initially to make good on those holes. Um, how did you manage that versus you know giving them the bad news that they'd really wasted eight days? Yeah, they, they didn't want to hear that. So I'd, uh, I teamed up with... Uh, one of the geologists from Cadelco. So he, he'd worked for BHP when he was out in Australia and his English was pretty good. And he, he, um, he had uh, some good uh, drilling exposure. So he understood uh, directional drilling. So we, we could really communicate about that. And me and him got together to work this plan out. So he got me a, a, a one-on-one meeting or, or me and Nicholas and Lawrence Goldburn, uh, a separate meeting and uh, we, we approached him, we said this, I can repair the holes, but it's going to take another 12 days uh, to do that. Uh, they're, they're so badly broken. What we recommend is, is that we, uh, we've analysed the holes, we've done some trajectory analysis. We think that if we drill a fresh hole from the surface, we'll get there a lot quicker. He didn't really want to hear that we shouldn't do those holes because that's what I, I said to him. We should stop that immediately and just focus on this. And he said, no. No, you must continue. They must see the Australian doing this work. Oh, okay, okay. So, I, I mean, I, I wasn't in a position to argue, but this is where, the, I guess, I become aware of the politics of it all. They'd, they'd gone and promoted their actions of bringing in this this expert and flying in all this uh, equipment and spending all this money. Uh, I guess, I, I still guess to this day, that they just wanted to make sure that uh, they make good of that. So I said, okay, but he, he also did allow us to, pro- to progress with the plan that we'd hatched. You know, I, I had a lot of rigs there. So we got another three rigs and we got them on the new plan. And then I went out to put on the directional show. And, and this is where he, um, I had to go and speak to the families. And, and to this day, it's, it's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. So um, what was that um, briefing that you had to give to the families and, and, and sort of how did that come about? Yeah, he, it was getting very, again, very emotional and um, they weren't really feeding a lot of information out to the families is the impression that I got. So there, it was like a little bit like a powder keg out there, I guess. Never dangerous though, but just very emotionally charged. Um, so yeah, Lawrence, he came and asked me personally though, um, if I could speak to the speak to the parents and, and tell them because every, every lunchtime he gave them a the, the media a briefing and this time on site they brought in some members uh, of the family there would have been oh, probably 30 odd uh, family members plus the media and he would give his address to them every day at lunchtime he, well he I say he asked me but it was like he told me and uh, again I couldn't say no so I thought oh um, okay so I thought it was going to be reasonably straightforward but it really wasn't I mean there was a language uh, barrier but he was he was translating for me and uh, he asked me to to speak to the people, and I, uh, yeah, it then it became extremely awkward. And all I could do was tell them that um, I will do everything in my power um, to to do everything that I can to to find their loved ones, and that that was my message to them. And I'm actually choking up a little bit now saying that because, um, you know, looking at those people, I was looking at them, but but they were looking through me. Uh, they they looked into me. Um, and, and, it, and it really, I, I think to this day, um, 
it, it changed me and affected me, you know, I, I think in a good way, but um, mm. it was just to see so many people just there, there, I'll never, ever, ever forget uh, their faces and their eyes. It, um, it helped drive me on. You step out of that briefing and, and no doubt, no doubt you, your thoughts go to your own home. How was, how was that affecting yourself at that time? Yeah, it's, you know, over my years in the business, it's, it's been, been one of those things. Luckily, uh, during the majority of my actual on-rig drilling career, I, I didn't have uh, children, but, but by this stage, I, I, I had a couple of, couple of lovely young girls uh, and I was away from them. And I think that's where I really drew that connection. You know, I was, I was missing them heaps, um, heaps. You know, this is the longest I'd been away from them. Uh, you know, I, I spent some, I know they spent 69 days away from their loved ones, but I'd spent 22 um, away from mine. Um, so it, it, I really tapped into that. And I, I, uh, I guess I, I could feel a little bit, I guess, of what they were feeling, just, just only the missing part of it. I mean, they, they were feeling so much more. They were, we didn't know that they were alive. At least I knew you know, my family was alive and, and back and missing me and wanting me. And, and I'd, I'd actually had a couple of Skype calls uh, with the girls, but it actually turned out worse because they, they were so young, they got to see me and then suddenly the Skype call was over and I disappeared and um, that was a little bit upsetting. But yeah, you know, I, I was missing my family and you know, they, they certainly were missing theirs, but just on such a, a more massive scale. With that, enormity really coming home now for you how how did that then you know spur you on as you said into 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 finding their loved ones uh it gave me a bit of a little bit more hope because I'll, look i'll be honest with you and everyone um when i got to site and i'd gotten a few of the details um i immediately thought oh this, this is going to be a little bit hopeless um they're just going to, there's just going to be bodies down there. I um, mean, I could appreciate the effort being put in by the new president and, and all that. And again, I'm, I'm trying to just keep it as a, well, this, this is just a directional job. Um, I thought, I thought it was a little bit hopeless, um, but then you could see that the people, they just wanted something, but you know, I, I didn't want to give them false hope, but you, you want to try and um, give, give some hope. And, and I'll, I'll never forget one crushing moment when we, we first broke through at the 400 meter level and it was into, uh, it was, a, it turned out to be a maintenance area. Um, now there was, there were two targets we identified one that was uh, deeper than 700 and this other uh, 400 meter target and the, the drill, the hole went through it and thought, Oh, okay. Bit of luck. Um, this, this could be a good thing. And I'll never forget being in the back of the, uh, the truck. We have a survey vehicle that has an optical viewer in it. And we lowered it down the drill hole and we're all, standing in the back of the truck watching the screen and you could see it moving through the casing and then it moved into a void and uh you know everyone just went silent and then into rubble it was just we couldn't go any further it was completely collapsed and and what little hope we had had, had just just gone it um and, and it was a real real crushing moment now i'll never forget that moment because immediately i thought oh this is hopeless how, how many holes do i have to drill to, into rubble before do we have to do this to find 33 bodies before they say okay let's give up and that concludes episode eight of crisis talks get the gringo part one in part two of get the gringo we'll pick up where we left off with the rescue operation after finding the void 
and realising that there was no survivors in that initial space. We'll hear how Kelvin realigned his team and refocused their efforts on finding the 33 trapped miners. We'll also explore the lasting effect that this incident had on Kelvin and his team and the way it's changed his own outlook on life for the positive. That concludes episode nine of Crisis Talks. In next week's episode, we sit down with Jim Molan, who recently finished up as a senator in New South Wales, and prior to that had served as a major, and prior to that had served as a general in the Australian Army. We talked to him about service, talked to him about, I talked with Jim about his life in service and understand some of the lessons he's learnt around leadership both from a military context and more recently as a, as a politician. And more recently as a politician.